You're listening to an IOE podcast. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to shape our everyday lives. This is Research for the Real World, conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to help shape everyday lives. Hello, I'm Dr. Amy Harrison. I'm an Associate Professor in Psychology at the Department of Psychology and Human Development at the IOE, UCL's Faculty of Education and Society. I research cognitive and social-emotional factors involved in the onset and maintenance of eating disorders. And I am Dr. Marta Francesconi. I am a lecturer in psychology, also based in the Department of Psychology and Human Development at the IOE. I'm mainly interested in researching factors that are predictive of mental health problems in children and adolescents. In this season of research for the real world, we are discussing how the cost of living and food insecurity is affecting children and young people's uh, life chances, specifically food banks in schools and the impact of economic crisis in children's learning. We're delighted to have Professor Gary McCulloch in the studio today to chew the fat about school meals, specifically the UK's school meals service and their impact on communities from the early 1900s to today. Gary is Brian Simon, Professor of the History of Education and the founding director of the International Centre for Historical Research in Education at the IOE. He's previously been president of the British Educational Research Association and the UK History of Education Society, as well as the editor of the British Journal of Educational Studies and the International Journal of the History of Education. Gary's research interests include the social history of secondary and higher education and the many facets that involve the theory, policy and teaching in the history of education. So welcome to the podcast, Gary. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with you. So firstly, as a bit of an icebreaker, we would like to hear how did you become interested in education? Ah, that's a very interesting question. I think it's probably mainly when I was at college, when I was a student uh, myself, as a an undergraduate and a postgraduate, I, I became particularly interested in the processes of education. I was already interested in history. I was doing a history undergraduate degree, and then I did history PhD. But being at Cambridge, with with all of the different aspects around Cambridge life and culture, the institutions there, Plus, being a, a very interesting time of educational change, broadly having gone to a grammar school and seeing the, the products of many public schools uh, at, at Cambridge, these things really interested me in, in terms of what they meant socially. So, the combination of, of history and education seemed very natural to me. The history of education wasn't something that I, I simply lapsed into. It, it was actually. Now I look back at it, quite a, a, a good uh, choice for me to develop. And uh, I'm you know, very pleased I've uh, been able to fashion uh, a key area for that. 
What an amazing career. So let's start from the beginning, especially for our listeners who don't come from the UK. Gary, what is the school meals service and why did it start? Well, the school meals service is basically intended to be a national service providing school meals for for children. That's it in in a nutshell. It's much more complicated than that now and always has been all the way through its history. Formally, its history goes back to 1906 in terms of the legislation. It's provided for, for the first time for funding to be provided as necessary for elementary school children to have access to facilities for milk and meals in England, in England and Wales. Scotland followed a couple of years later. And since then, there's been legislation of various types to to support this in different ways, but it's gone through different kinds of phases. And we can look at those perhaps in more detail about how those did affect the children at the different stages in its history. That's fascinating. Can you tell us about your research project on the school meals service that was funded by the ESRC? I'll be delighted to. The ESRC gave very generous funding for this project, which is both historical and ethnographic in its, in its character. So very grateful to the ESRC for its support. It's, it's a, a project which is interinstitutional, that is, it's led by the IOE, UCL, to, together with universities of Wolverhampton and Sheffield. My uh, investigators are Heather Ellis in Sheffield and Gopinda Lally at uh, Wolverhampton. And we've recruited three excellent researchers, one for each institution, to, to support the, the, the project. So together we, we make uh, what's now a very good team of, of six researchers, each looking at, at different aspects of this, of this project. Uh, Strand One, led by the IOE, looks at the policy history of the school bill service since 1906, making use particularly of documentary evidence, of which there's a huge amount, which we're digging into in different archives. Strand 2, a letter at the University of Sheffield, is on the social history, which looks at the community and the schools and the, the children, the parents, the dinner ladies, everyone who has been involved in, in, in the school meal service, particularly making use of, of oral history interviews. And Strand 3, a letter at the University of Wolverhampton with Gopinda, is an ethnographic case study for, for case study schools looking at the social practices of, of school bills today and trying to see whether they could take advantage of, of the lessons of the past, of the experience of this, of, of this service over the last hundred years. Thank you very much. It really sounds like a fascinating and comprehensive project. Since you mentioned it, would you tell us more about the impact about, of the school meal service on schools and their communities since the inception of the service in 1906 in terms of its aims, achievements and limitations? Thank you, yes. I would divide the impact of the service on, on the children in three different phases of, of its development. Phase one, I would say, from 1906 to the 1944 Education Act, when it was a very minimalist uh, service, intended not, not to cost any money, really, overall, and leaving it to the local educational authorities uh, rather than the Board of Education to say whether there was any need for A, school meals at all, B, free school meals, and C, support with milk. 
this led it to be very haphazard, a very low key. Many parts of the country didn't didn't see any any uh, support from it at all. Even the disadvantaged areas, in many cases, didn't get much benefit from it. A big sea change in attitude during the Second World War, for reasons around uh, food rationing and uh, changing social attitudes. And the 1944 Education Act set out to provide much more uh, in, in terms of a national support for uh, uh, school meals. It, it was to become much more of a social institution, really more of a part of the school curriculum for all schools, and something which, which would provide in a much more systematic way for it to be part of, of the new welfare state of the 1940s and 1950s and 1960s. Uh, that was challenged more and more. But so that by 1980, we entered into phase three, which tended to lead to the service being again made into a permissive type of, a, of approach. Marketization took a really strong hold over it. And so it became again very varied in, in its role in, in different parts of the country depending on on support in, in different ways in, in different local areas and so that's where we are now i think we're encountering more and more debates around the last five or ten years uh, local initiatives around what the future of it should should be and whether we should carry on with with the current provision or whether there's some other kind of way in which we could go forward whether there could be a phase four Absolutely fascinating. What's been the social experience of free school meals, do you think? Free school meals really has, uh, has had a number of, of different kinds of, of aspects socially. It's been a, a, a mixture, a roller coaster, really, of emotions and sensations, you could say. At the root of it, there's the, there's the hunger, the, the front headline aspect of school meals has to be hungry children and that's been the draw card of it right from the start something which has raised it above other areas of welfare provision been the image of, of hungry children going through their childhood their everyday school days with nothing much to eat they're finding it very hard to to, to learn as, as a result but at the same time there's been the distaste of many children for the school meals. Many uh, children and uh, adults have got memories of themselves uh, being force-fed into eating all sorts of things which they didn't really like. Maybe you yourselves have got these kinds of memories. I I certainly do from my own school days of really very variable kind, kinds of food. And, and yeah, with, I remember with, the cornflake. Corn even, even to this day, <laughs> I can't eat lumpy custard and yeah. I associate it with with my school days. And I always say that along with the 11 plus examination, school food is, is probably the, the one thing that everybody remembers from, from their, own, their own school days and has got some kind of story to say about it. But there's also not, not just those, but also a, a shame and embarrassment which is being associated with free school meals. Again, I, I remember I myself had free school meals for a while and my mother was a very proud mother she hated the idea that I, I could have school meals, you know, with my other siblings as well. And, it, you know, that becomes a very kind of personal account. And that also draws on its prehistory in, in the poor law, 
and its status as a charity. Many people historically haven't liked uh, being that, that having to take having to take charity. You know, it's it's a very personal and again a very emotional kind of thing. So many of these things and, and others we're, we're picking up from our interviews, from the literature as well, the, the primary literature, and, and to see the, the, the very vivid stories that, that you can tell about the, about the development of school meals from the point of view of the, of the children themselves. That's very interesting. I wasn't raised in the UK, so to me it's like a whole new world. It's very, it's very, very interesting to learn about it. Can we consider the post-war years from 1940s to the 1970s as the golden age of the school meal service? It's tempting to, in, in some ways, but simply because it, it, it looks so different from what went before before 1944 and, and what went after in 1980. Those, those middle years seemed to be a, a period when they were really trying to do something different, something radical and interesting, which would improve society and, and, the, and, the, and the role of schools in society. Of course, historians are always suspicious of golden years, and I think they're right to be so, and because the actual picture, when you start to look at it more closely, is more, is more complex than that. In reality, although there were very inflated hopes for the school meal service, it was a very expensive thing to do properly. The fact that they still needed the local authorities to, to take a lead of it meant that some schools were doing it very well, while other schools didn't do it so well. It is very uneven from that point of view. The nu- nutritional value of, of the meals was, was very varied. The educational value of, of the meals, which they hoped to really develop further, the idea that they would improve as citizens, that they would, they would be able to learn how to be good citizens by conversing at the dinner table and using their knives and forks properly. All of that was very varied indeed. So places like, for example, Swansea. Swansea was very keen on, on this new development being a, a great social institution. But actually, Swansea in the 1950s and 1960s wasn't particularly good for, for, for school meals. There, there are a lot of criticisms made, made about it. Maybe the greatest area of success for school meals in, in that period was in the rural areas rather than the urban areas because in the rural areas they, they could maybe get everybody together in the same space. There was more provision for, for the local foods and they could be more part of, of the school curriculum. Whereas in the in the urban areas is much more varied and, and very much up, up and down, so that's a possibility which we're trying to explore a bit more at the moment. Fascinating. I mean, aside from my own experiences of eating school meals, I remember the green custard, the cornflake cakes. You know, this is a real journey back and a nostalgic, <laughs> nostalgic experience. However, there's a much more serious side. To this and the development of the service and I guess I'm wondering are there lessons to be learned from the past experiences of the school meals service for the future provision of school meals suited really to the rapidly changing conditions of the 21st century so we've got the cost of living crisis and increasing reliance on free school meals food banks and so on. Yes very much so this is a very important part of the project that the history isn't just for its own sake it's for what it can tell us about how to make use of that, that experience. So this is something that we're wanting to tease out a lot more as, as, as we go along. 
I think it's important to make sure that that we do not go outside our own kind of context. You know, it's very, you know, historical lessons can be overdone as well. So that's important to say that. But I I think, for example, we we can try to make the point that that there's been an entanglement of the the, the kinds of of economic priorities which, which are often set. Uh, for school meals, with, with the social needs for the school meals, I think that that's an important point. It is an expensive policy, and and it's not always recognised as an educational policy either. So the uh, Treasury, ever since at least the nineteen fifties, has been trying to reduce the amount of of funding for school meals in various ways, and to manage the decline of of school meals as a, as a service. I think you can see that as a a thing. So. Importantly, I think that in order to develop in the future uh, as a recognised part of the school service, it ha- its educational purposes have to be really emphasised as, uh, as as a key part of it and, and shown to be important. Also, I think that, that the health aspects of it need to, need to be emphasised, its role in nutrition. Ever since the 1980 Act, Education Act put the responsibility for nutrition increasingly on, on the local educational authorities, our loss of a of a vision for the nutrition of the, of the service again has been lost, and so emphasizing the health aspects of it and again the educational aspect of it, of it too is really important you know how how it makes a difference to to school children's uh, learning after lunch as opposed to if they haven't had any any lunch at all you know and and really coming down with 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 clear and accurate documentation of, of these of these kinds of things. But I think also recognising that, that each of these phases constituted a compromise between different sorts of, of aspects and that if we do develop a new approach, say in the next five years or so, what kinds of compromises will that will that involve? It may not it may not be something which is clear cut in a way that, that uh, individuals, activists or, or even academics might want, but, but a compromise between different social, economic and cultural factors, as has been the case in the past. Gary, I was also wondering about what might be some of the very contemporary considerations around the school meals service. I'm thinking about the the fact that we know that lots more children are experiencing food allergies. And also our schools are very diverse places with children from all different backgrounds. And how does the school meals service operate in that context? Well, it's fascinating, actually. We're finding lots of different stories around the different allergies allergies to particular foods that have affected uh, children around the country really over the years the extent of those allergies whether they are simply individual or may have affected the whole the whole school in some cases and uh, what was done to, to try to address those problems when they when they did find them there certainly are, are some instances at least and you know one could say that uh, it was uh, fortunate that, that uh, at least in all appearances there didn't seem to be a, an extreme uh, situation although again we'll we'll be able to say more about that as we as we look look further into that i think also the problems with what often seem to be upset stomachs as a result of uh, e- eating the food and the problems which that could, could raise with the learning. 
but also at at, um, at a cultural level as well. That the traditional pattern of, of school meals, meat and two veg, very English, arguably very stodgy kind of variety, the single type types of, of meat as well. That may have been something in the 1940s, but with the increasing diversification of, of uh, English society in the 1950s, 1960s and onwards, that basic pattern was, was very often not seen to be in the interest of uh, particular ethnic groups. And very, very often complaints made uh, by parents and by the children themselves are being obliged to, to eat something that's completely outside their own culture, you know, natural complaints, of course. And and that itself became another challenge to this so-called golden age of, of the 1940s and 1950s that many different groups in, in society really weren't, weren't wanting to accept that anymore. And so another way arguably needed to be found in, in, in the uh, needs of the market, which uh, were emphasised for the 1980s. And what do you make of current provisions like the Mayor of London's funding for free school meals for primary school children? Thank you. Yes, the Mayor's uh, provision for free school meals in London is a very interesting initiative. And it's part and parcel of the growing debate about school meals and, and free school meals, which has developed in the last 10 years especially. Often that's been based on different kind of local experiments. And that's been very much in the running of the tradition of school meals in the past. In this particular case, London's very often been in the forefront of providing school meals. That was the case uh, before the Second World War with the London County Council, when they they did much more than than many other areas did in the country. So it's living up to its its past, if you, you could say, in that kind of way. But also, it may be the forerunner of a new approach towards uh, school school meals in the future. Uh, there, you could see that it's uh, joining forces with the regionalisation of school meals, you could, which you could see in Wales and in Scotland as well. That these are challenging the provision, which is uh, fairly well set now, which has been the case uh, in England now for several decades. Uh, it may be that those regions are providing us with new instruments, new, new ideas about about how how to deal with this on on a, on a more national basis. So I think it's very interesting indeed, and, and we look forward to seeing the the outcomes of that over the next year or so. Yeah, we are looking forward to the outcomes too. So what is next for the project, and also any other things that are uh, on your radar? We're really uh, heavily into the data collection at the moment. Uh, all, all of us are, are going r- around the country in our various ways, collecting lots and lots of data, which we intended to be, as really needs to be, at first priority. There's a huge amount of data to, to be collected. And then in the second year of the project, which will start next year, uh, to get much more into the writing and the dissemination, the conferences, uh, going, going to different places, sharing in our ideas, learning from, from other, other projects which are in related areas. Learning also, I think, from what's going on internationally. I think that there's an international story to, to tell here, which is of the variation, the very widely varied histories and experiences of school meals, which you find in different countries around Europe, in America, in Asia, in Australia, in New Zealand, and, and trying to connect up with those. 
fact, that might well be a, a next project which which could be done as a world history of school mills, which would be great fun. That is absolutely amazing to think about that international context. Thank you so much, Gary. It's been really interesting to revisit your incredible career and to really hear about this area of research. And I particularly enjoyed thinking about how this policy has gone on for you know years, decades, and has had quite a few different guises and been and manifested in quite a few different ways. And it's really demonstrated its importance. And the research that you've done has really highlighted for the policymakers the importance of um, making these meals available to children. And it really resonates with my own research focus because we know that people that go without food even for three or four hours start to have impacts on their cognitive abilities and so it just is so important in the school context to make sure that children have enough food and it's also on the other hand a bit shocking that we have to consider things like this in in the modern day and age so thank you so much for your work and the really great impact it's had on lots of of children over the years thank you for coming on the podcast <laughs> i'm most most grateful for for that and, and uh, to to both amy and to marta for your excellent questions if i may say so um and for for uh, sharing the session with me today um and i can offer my congratulations to, to the aoe for this excellent series on research for the real world which uh, i think is is so important for us all, all today to learn from. You can follow the research project on X, the website formerly known as Twitter, at ESRC School Meals to learn more. Uh, some of what we have covered today is also available on the episode notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, we have an archive of 20 past seasons. Search IOE podcast to find episodes of research for the real world, as well as more podcasts from the IOE. And a quick favor before you go, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we'd really appreciate if you could give the IOE podcast a rating. A five star would be nice if you are enjoying the show. Uh, that would help us to reach more people who are interested in hearing about such important work. I'm Amy. And I am Marta. And thanks for listening. Bye. Research for the Real World is produced by IOE Marketing and Communications and IOE Research Development. The theme music was created by Rob Cochran. Tatiana Sotero-Diaz is the series advisor. Amy Leibowitz is the series producer. And Jason Ilagin is the executive producer of the IOE podcast. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast. 